Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Sheikh Hamza Karamali. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, Hamza um, works in the field of science, atheism, and Islam, and he aims to train 10,000 Muslim teachers on how to counter science-based arguments against God. He is also producing a YouTube series called The Thinking Muslim's Guide to Atheist Arguments. You can see all his work through the uh, Basira Education, which I, th I will link to in the description below. That's www.basiraeducation.org. And it's really worth looking at, actually. There's some amazing uh, and very accessible resources that you can uh, watch and listen to there. Hamza will be, be speaking today about Islam's argument for God's existence. I mean, I didn't know there was the argument for God's existence uh, from Islam. So this is uh, an education for me. And I've heard you say, uh, Hamza, that a child can understand the argument for the existence of God. And I find that very interesting. So let's start off with that. Imagine I'm a child. Prove to me that God exists. Sure. So um, we look at the sky, the sky is blue. And so I say, who made the sky blue? Um, I look at the leaf of a tree, see it's green. What made the leaf of the tree green? Why does the sun shine? Why does the wind blow? God did it. There you go. <laughs> okay. But the, a child doesn't understand that we have scientific explanations for all these things. Good. So I'm going to maybe just, this will require a little bit of um, intellectual humility. <laughs> so we have two options. One, one option is to say that the child is not as advanced in his understanding as we are, because he hasn't studied science, doesn't know about the laws of nature, doesn't know about nuclear fusion, doesn't know about photosynthesis, doesn't know about how light works. And so he's giving these really simplistic answers and he doesn't really understand what's going on in the universe. That's one option. The other option is maybe he understands something because as a child, he hasn't been exposed to certain ideas that have confused us. Um, so that it seems a little bit, um, uh, you know, it seems a little bit unlikely when you look at it at first glance, but I'd like us right from the outset just to have these two options before us. Um, so we're going to say that we're going to be a little bit humble, that, you know, maybe, maybe the child gets something that we don't. They're there. Now let's come back and, uh, and answer your question. Then we'll come back to, um, to this, these two options. So when uh, let's, I'll give you a scenario. Um, let's say that there's a long line of people and the person at the front, he is leaning back 
because you know he can't support himself. And then the person behind him, he strikes the person behind him, and that person gets hit by him, and he can't hold him up, so he starts to fall over as well. And then he strikes the next person, who strikes the next person, and they're all leaning backward. And um, and and this line continues as far as the eye can see. So it goes past the horizon, and you can't see what's at the end of the line, but you can see that they're not on the ground. They're leaning on each other and they haven't fallen to the ground. So they're closely, closely packed. So what would you conclude? Well, um, what would I conclude? Uh, That's a very interesting question. I conclude that we have an infinite series of people leaning against each other, just going on and on and on forever and ever and ever. And that's a curious (laughs) thing to claim. There's something not quite right there, is there? If there's an infinite series. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I don't think you would conclude that. Well, you might conclude you might. I think that it might come to you as a possibility. But I think most people would conclude that at the end of the line, there's something, someone that's holding everything up. Maybe there's a mountain. Maybe there's a really strong person or something, maybe there's an alien, whatever, but there's something at the end that's not leaning on anything that's holding everything up. Because if that thing wasn't there, Mm -hmm. then they would all be lying on the ground. Let me unpack that. You mentioned infinity. So there's there's a rule, principle. The principle is that an infinite regress of dependencies is impossible. An infinite regress of dependencies is impossible. So there's many different kinds of infinite regress. So there's you could have an infinite temporal regress, which means that the uh, that's that comes about in the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, you could have a inf- you could have an uh, you could have an infinite quantity of space. That's where Hilbert's hotel and all these other things come from. We're not talking about any one of these things. We're talking about a specific kind of infinite regress. So you have infinite regress or progress. Progress is movement in the forward direction. Regress is movement in the backward direction. So we have an infinite regress, a movement uh, in the backwards direction of a dependency. So we're talking about a very specific kind of infinity. And what we mean by infinity is never ending. So uh, a simple way to say this is a never ending series in the backward direction of thing A dependent on thing B, dependent on thing C, dependent on thing D, on and on and on and on and on. So this is, it, it cannot, you cannot have that. And the reason why you can't have that is because if that were the case, then in the case of the line, everybody would be lying on the floor because there's nothing real for anything to depend on. So if I, if, so I, I, I leaned back, I'm dependent. I need somebody to support me. So I went, I leaned on the person behind me and he couldn't support me. So he leaned back on the person behind him. Now, if I just take a snapshot, I'm A, the person behind me is B. I'm, I'm, I'm dependent. I need something to hold me up. So I lean back on B and B is also dependent. That means he's not doing anything. That means that, that means that both I and B are dependent on C. So the presence of B 
hasn't improved the situation. <clears throat> it's made the situation worse. <laughs> right. And then when you add C, that hasn't improved the situation. It made it, it's made it even worse. So a never-ending series of dependencies is equivalent to saying that I am not being supported by anything. But obviously I am because I'm not on the floor. So you need... What that means is that it's not never ending, but everything is being held up by something that doesn't need something else. And the same thing with the things in the universe. So when I look at the sun, for example, why does the sun shine? Um, I'll go in my science class and I'll learn about nuclear fusion. I'll learn that uh, two hydrogen atoms, they come together. Uh, through the force of gravity to form a helium atom, there's a loss of mass. That mass, that loss of mass is uh, released as energy equals mc squared, and it continues. And that's what's that's the shining of the sun. It's that release of energy, that release of heat. Um, so that's a scientific explanation. But what I've done with the scientific explanation is I have explained one dependent thing, which is the shining of the sun. The shining of the sun is dependent because I look at the sun, I say, what made it shine? I search for an explanation. The reason why I search for an explanation is because I see that it needs something. It's dependent. It's not that shining is not intrinsic to it, but something else is making it shine. But then I point to something else. And that other thing that I point to is an, is you know, a, a particular property of atoms and a particular way in which they come together. And this is dependent on a variety of things, among them certain constants in the universe that determine the strength of the forces and many other things. But these two are also dependent. They need something else to make them the way that they are. And what the scientist will do is he will search for another explanation, and it's all within the universe. And the things in the universe are all dependent. We have a technical name for it. We call it contingency. The things in the universe are contingent. They're dependent. It means they need something to make them the way that they are. Um, so, so a scientist is forever searching for another, and that's the progress of science. So the scientist searches, and then it opens up a new vista. And so he searches more, a new vista, he searches more. And the, the realm of scientific inquiry is the contingent universe. But if we step back for a moment and consider the analogy of that line, then we can see that the things in the universe are dependent on someone who is not dependent on anything. And that has to be something that's beyond the universe because the universe is entirely contingent. Um, and that being necessary being who doesn't need anything to make him the way that he is, to make it the way that it is, that is, that's the existence of that thing is what the child discerned. So when the child says that the sky was made blue by God, and this was made, the, the leaf was made green by God, he was making a correct statement, he realized something. But what happens is that when we, uh, when we study science, then we are engaged in explaining things in the universe with respect to other things in the universe, physical things that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can, you know, very easy. 
to to access and we fall into a fallacy um i call it the fallacy of materialism which is the idea that the physical universe material universe is self explanatory because that's all we're doing and um and so the child since he hasn't been exposed to that method of thinking um his uh, or her reasoning is a lot more intuitive natural so um so that's so so he got it they got it right okay i'm i'm nearly there because the 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 argument is that this is proof for god's existence you talk about contingency you talk about cause and effect things depending on other things um and that's what science observes like i get that but you say there must be a necessary being because we can't have an infinite regress of cause and effects cause and effects we've got to be something has to start the thing off be the the initial uncaused cause the the necessary being but why must the necessary being be god uh, i mean uh, it, it seemed that the god of islam is not just a an abstract concept you know, god is someone who is the most merciful the loving the kind that the person who cares about his creation and and that seems to be quite a bit more than just saying that we have to have a necessary being for the universe to exist a universe of contingent effects that you know that they don't explain their own origin i get that but it doesn't seem to lead to an islamic conception of god in its fullness it may point in that direction but it's not an argument for god's existence in the islamic sense would that be So there's there's two aspects to your question. Um there's there's the first part of it. Um the first part of it if we just uh is before we come to the the second part which is yeah. the main main part which is what's islamic about it. Yeah. Um the way that you that you articulated when you said that something needs to start it off mm-hmm. and there's a chain of causes and effects that's not quite what it is. Okay. And so this is not a first cause argument. So if you examine if you imagine a line of dominoes and they're all lined up and then you push the first one and that hits the next one and they all fall in the forward direction that's the first cause argument. Right. You need something to start it off. And the first cause argument there's something that's activating something else which then activates something else which then activates something else. Um in the argument that I presented it's not the dominoes aren't moving falling in the forward direction they're they are leaning back in the backwards direction and um and so the there is the difference between them is that when they're leaning back then it is a then they don't have any independence at all they're radically contingent they're radically dependent on on someone whereas if you do something there's something yeah yeah doing yeah. So that's helpful. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's 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 the that's the that's the first thing. Okay. So the second thing is that um that how what's islamic about mm. this argument? Yeah. So uh so there's a number of ways we can come at this. So first the first way in which it's islamic is that it's actually this aspect. So it's not it's not a complete description of who God is. there's other aspects but this way of thinking and this aspect of god's existence and this way of reasoning about god is there in the quran so this isn't an argument that i just made up right mm-hmm. so for example there's a there's a 
uh, chapter of the Quran that every you know, every Muslim child learns. One of the first surahs he learns in Surah Al-Ikhlas, uh, yeah. it says, Allahu Samad. Allahu Samad means Allah is the one on whom everything depends and he doesn't depend on, on anyone. Was that Abdul Halim's translation that I saw you pick up? No, uh, yes, Abdul Halim's, yes. I was, I was thinking... Yeah, of, that's, that's, that's one of my favorite ones. Oh, yeah. I'm curious to see how he translates that verse. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's uh, Muhammad Asad's translation, which I think really brings out um, many of these um, words. Um, so this is Surah 112. Uh, say he is God the One, God the Eternal. And there's a note, Samad, other commonly held interpretations include self-sufficient and sought by all, brackets, exactly. the great uh, yeah. theologian. And he begot no one, nor was he begotten, and no one is comparable to him. Uh, but Muhammad Asad, which I don't have to hand, also has quite an expansive definition in his translation yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. but when he said self-sufficient and besought by all, that's exactly it, meaning that not dependent on anyone, but everyone's depending on him. Then, you, you know, the first verse of the Quran and of every single surah except one, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, the letter Ba there is normally translated as in the name of God. But um, I think a, a more accurate in terms of meaning translation would be with the help of the name of God. You're actually seeking the help of God to do something. Why yeah. am I seeking the help of God to do something? Because I'm dependent on him. I'm needy on him. I am contingent. That's a, a way. When I the in the first verse of Surah Al-Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praise is deserved only by God, um, the uh, the Lord, sustainer of the universe. Why? So when I praise someone, right? So I say, well, that's a nice. You're looking good, right? That's and that was very kind of you. That was so. Oh, I, there's things that I like in the world. I. I praise people, I admire certain things, and I, I'm awed by certain... Alhamdulillah, the only one who deserves to be praised is God, because every good thing that we see is, a, is something that is brought into existence dependent upon, upon God. So um, then, uh, you know, in Allah yumsiku samawati wal arda an tazula. In other words, verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps the heavens and the earth in existence lest they disappear. This is like an explicit, you know, the whole. And then there's verses about the signs in the heavens and the earth and the alternation of the night and the day. So um, so these, these um, uh, let me just take, let's take another one, like another verse. So there's a verse that I remember as a 15-year-old I recited this verse after my GCSE uh, physics class in which I learned <laughs> Bernoulli's principle of flight. And there's a verse where that says that don't they look at the birds in the sky that have their wings outstretched and then they, they, they put them in like this, high-flying birds, like eagles. Um, Nobody holds them in place up there, except the all-merciful. And I said that, well, what, what about Bernoulli's principle of flight? I, that's the thing that's, that's yeah, doing well, it. Where, where does that leave? I mean, where, where does that statement in the kind of leave science? Where does that leave science? Yeah, yeah. So um, science becomes something different. It becomes a different activity. And this is, this is actually most, a lot of what my work is when I, you mentioned about training 10,000 teachers. So um, the, a lot of what I do is I help Muslim teachers 
um, embrace science and integrate it into and uh, into a contingency perspective. So when you when you look at when you look at science, it from a perspective of contingency, it becomes relations, relations between contingent things, and this goes back to you know God's mercy, God's wisdom. Um, so when I when I the classic example is that when I take medicine, God creates the medicine, God creates the cure. But there's a regularity there. There's a God regularly creates the cure when I take the medicine. But both things are dependent, and He's placed within me an ability to perceive and see these relations in the universe, and that's what I see. Because if I didn't see this, then I wouldn't be able to function. So imagine that you woke up in the morning and you didn't perceive any relations. Just imagine for a second what the world would look like. I asked, I gave this as homework to... <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even begin to do that exercise. It's too radical for my, for my to you know, understand the question, better than think of the answer. But yeah. Yeah. That, you're, you're getting it. So, when, what, so I, my various students, they give very different answers, but one of my students, her name was Zainab. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve her and uh, give her every trophy. She's in university now. She said, um, she said, I'd be a vegetable. I wouldn't be able to move. I wouldn't be able to do anything. Because when I, when I, when I raise my hand, I anticipate based on my decision to contract certain muscles that my hand is going to move this way, get out of bed, walk to bed. When I go into the bathroom and I squeeze a tube of toothpaste, I anticipate that when I squeeze it, the toothpaste is going to come out on the other side. And, uh, and this is, it's true. All of these relations are true. They're there. I perceive them and, and my life would become impossible if mm. I didn't perceive them. But what I perceive is relations. I don't perceive one thing actually independently bringing anything else about. But there, this is a common, it's a common mistake. It's a common mistake to make that association. And the reason why we make that association is because of animal instinct. So there's a famous experiment, um, Ivan Pavlov, Pavlovian conditioning, classical conditioning of um, the Russian scientist who, um, who had dogs um, and he he brought them food and he rang a bell. And so when they saw the food, they started salivating um, and he did it again. I, I, I still do that today, by the way, when I, when I can start <laughs> cooking, I start salivating. So I guess I'm a bit of a Pavlovian dog myself <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, 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 no, well, no. well no, you're not a dog, but, <laughs> but, uh, but there's, but that instinct is there within us. Yeah. That same instinct is within us. So when, 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 so when they started, so you, you know, the, I'll just, for, for everybody else who's watching, I'll just finish the explanation. Uh, but, uh, but he did that repeatedly. And then one day he came and he rang the bell and he didn't bring the food and they started salivating. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what had happened was they'd become conditioned into, into believing that the, that the bell brings about the food. Hmm. Um, but we look at it now, we say, oh, well, you know, it's stupid dogs, you know, like, you know, they, they, and we're, I'm really smart. Like, I can see that it's a human being standing outside doing all of these things. But maybe when we, when we, um, when we take advantage of all of these relations and we think that this is doing this and this is doing this, 
maybe it's all being orchestrated by someone else. And we are very similar to those dogs. And what the argument from contingency reveals is, yes, it is. Okay, I'm going to throw something slightly... Uh, uh, the Matrix, the film The Matrix. Are we talking like a Matrix-type paradigm here where we look at the world of causality, we think we're living, we have real agency, but in fact, it's not that it's an illusion but because it's kind of there, but it doesn't have that solidity and self-sufficiency we think it has. There is actually a program that's bringing this out, and this program or the programmer, what's he called in the, the film, The Architect? I forget the name of the... I mean, if it's like a cipher for God, basically... But it, it, but the, the 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 whole program is contrived, and we may think in our scientific wisdom that we are analysing the cause and effects within this program. But in fact, we're missing the point. The point is that it is actually all orchestrated, ordered, made uh, by someone outside of the program, whom we call God. I mean, would that be a, an analogy you're comfortable with, or is that a bit? No, it wouldn't be. <laughs> but that would be an analogy that Sam Harris might be comfortable with. And, and, uh, and so, so, so and, and what that illustrates is, what I want to illustrate is that this, um, so you, you've touched on human agency and free will, right? And that's one of the most common uh, reactions to someone when, when uh, that someone has, uh, particularly people who, who, have, who don't have experience with, um, you know, being Muslim or um, you know, a non-Muslim who's looking from the outside. Um, so uh, that, wait a minute, this means that, you know, I'm just, it's on illusion. I, I'm not really doing anything. Um, so, so the first thing that I think is important to understand is that this idea, it, it can also be the conclusion of, um, of uh, materialism. So if somebody believes that the universe is completely atoms and molecules and laws of nature, and uh, then uh, then everything that happens, including what we're doing right now, is a result of the initial conditions at the moment of the Big Bang and the laws of nature that were there, and then the inevitable um, unfolding of reality. And so this is the matrix, right? So this this would be the matrix because there's a what's the, what's the what's the program? The program is the laws of nature, and everything is an illusion. And uh, and that's and there's no free will. There's no there's no choice. Um, so so this illustrates two things. The first thing that it illustrates is that is that the the issue of free will and determinism and human free will it's not related to God per se, but it's related to uh, to there being there being something more powerful than me on which I depend. So if that thing is God, then it creates the problem. If that thing is laws of nature, it creates the same problem. So it's not a, it's not something that's unique to God. Now, if we kind of compare these two perspectives, just, now I, I know that we know that the, the contingency argument shows that the Sam Harris way of looking at things is a, is, is, is a mistake because, there's no necessary being on whom everything depends. Um, but if we just compare the two for a second and we add one thing to, to God. So this now comes back to um, something else that you, that you asked. I think I'll just quickly go there and come back to, to, your, to your question, which was that God has, um, you know, he has other, as there's other aspects to God other than his necessary existence. And one of these 
aspects is his agency. So God is a, um, uh, in the Quran and also through reason, he's a volitional agent, meaning that he knows, he chooses, and um, he's not a machine. He's not a machine. So, uh, and someone who has agency can choose to do something and choose not to do something. This is why we pray. And this is why I, I, I supplicate to God. I ask him to fulfill my, my needs um, because everything is dependent on him and he can make things in any way. And, and so now, uh, just, just like if we just have a quick comparison, um, the, uh, the uh, Sam Harris view is a, is a machine. That's the matrix, right? Over here, it's not a machine. It's not a machine. It's God who's most merciful. And um, so that's, that's one, that's, that's, that's a difference. We can explore this difference a little bit. Um, but the, I think that brings us to, so tell me how you want the conversation to go. So from uh, here, so I, there's. I, I just want to, to show I'm understanding, just to, to summarize in my, in my own words. You, you, you seem to be saying that the universe is not self-sufficient, uh, that it's radically contingent for its very existence, the existence of anything and everything in it to a being beyond it that is not the universe, not within the universe, obviously, but beyond the universe in some way, um, not before in time, as if you could have it before, like a first cause. You, you don't mean that at all. You, you mean that in the ongoing existence of the universe now, every second and every event and every cause in the universe, it's radically dependent on for its existence at all not just cause and effect but its very existence yes. necessitates the existence of a necessary being which you call god and because the universe exists in the way as such it's clearly must be the creation of a will because it, it is uh it is it's contingent it doesn't have to be here because everything in the universe might not exist Therefore, there is a will, expression of will in some way, which suggests consciousness, purposefulness. Um, so we're, we're filling out a conception of God here, which is not just a machine. Um, it, it's God with, with will and, and uh, volition, as, as you say. Um, am I, am I, is everything I've said in my own words there now on track with what you're saying? Or am I still not quite on beam with your... Yeah. I, I would, uh, I would, uh, so just to kind of a little bit uh, expand. So yeah, the, our, what it shows is our, our relation to God is a relation of dependency. It's not, a, it's not a temporal relation. It's not a spatial relation. It's a dependency relation uh, of our, so that's, that's the first part when you were saying yeah, beyond, beyond the universe. Yeah. It's, it's on, it's, we're doing, to use jargon here, this is ontology here, isn't it? We're dealing with yeah, the, right. the origin of being, the being of God, the being of the universe is radically contingent on the being yeah. of God. So why is there something, right? This is Wittgenstein's question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something? Why is there anything? And that is because God has brought it into being. Um, are you with me? Yeah. So, so I think we would modify what Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein says by saying, why is there something can, why? So I, I don't, I don't agree with that dichotomy. Right. So um, I don't, and that's not, I and mean, there's a lot of, um, so, so William Lane Craig uses this in his, um, in his Kalam cosmological argument. And, 
And when he does, it's not, I don't think it's sound reasoning. It's not what the scholars of Kalam would say. So we're not saying why there's something rather than nothing, because then that applies also to God. You know, like God, why is there something rather than nothing with respect to God? So what we're, that's, that's not what we're saying is, why is there something contingent? That's what we're saying. And uh, the, the something-nothing dichotomy, it leads to a number of, uh, of problems down the line. Um, maybe we can... Um, but uh, should we just kind of come back, come back to what you said? So the first part is good. Second part is, I, I really like the way that you said that contingency brings out volition, will, because things have, could have been some other way, and that's something that we perceive. We perceive that that something could have been some other way. I wouldn't say consciousness um, because um, consciousness has um, a little bit of an anthropomorphic um, uh, nature to it. But I would say, um, and the Quran says, um, life, knowledge, will, and power. And God created the universe through his power and his agency. Um, he chose to make it. He freely chose to make everything the way that it is. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just, uh, where, where shall we go? Sorry, it, no, it's, just, it's not just that God upholds the universe in existence um, in this way, uh, con- or the contingent universe, but that everything within it also is dependent on God's creative power for it to exist in this, in this dependent way. Okay, so coming back to the child's, um, you asked me, uh, you know, it's the beginning, imagine, uh, I asked you to imagine a child, um, the child uh, says something on the lines of the sky is blue, um, who made the wind and so on. Well, God did. So you're saying in, in the most fundamental way or, or the most absolute way conceivable, that is true. And that, right. despite that science, or particularly some expressions of science, are very materialist in their analysis and focus on particular within the universe relationships between, say, cause and effect yeah. And we kind of think, well, that's everything, the, the, expl- the explanation of everything. And you're saying, no, 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 this is a much bigger context of uh, contingency leading to, yeah. So I, I think I, I understand. So the child's answer was at a fundamental level, the correct answer, but it doesn't, this doesn't leave science with, with no room. It still leaves science with its own little area of activity, of looking at the observable within the universe that if, if it if it thinks that that is the totality of all that there is and it can explain everything, then it's it violated that more fundamental understanding that you've outlined. Would that be fair enough? Um, yeah. So it uh, science becomes a uh, description of contingent re- regular contingent relations in the universe. Yeah. yeah. And so what what that means is you can have you can have science. You do have, and science is true. And it is telling us real things about the world. And, you know, E equals MC squared is true. Um, F equals MA is true. Photosynthesis is true. Everything that a child would learn in science classroom is true. Hmm. But we're, we're adding, um, just to use jargon again, we're adding metaphysical clarity. So we're, 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 the science is at the level of relationships between the observable things. But we're, we're, we're saying that there's something in the background, so to speak. And when you see the thing in the background, then the foreground, it comes to have a different meaning. And so what's the different meaning that it, that it comes to have? It, it, it now, this also goes back to what you said, what's Islamic about this? This is what allows me to have a spiritual relationship with God in everything that I do. 
Right. So, um, so the when in La ilaha illallah, like the quintessential statement of Islam, there's no ilah except except Allah. The word ilah, sometimes translated as God, in the ancient Arabic language, it means something that is worshipped. And so, when you worship something, the the like I guess the one of the most be- beautiful expressions of that is the prostration. So you prostrate and you are you are supplicating, and that expression is an expression of my own neediness to God, who doesn't need anything, who fulfills all of my needs. That only belongs to Allah. La ilaha illallah. There's no one to whom this is expressed except God, because He is the one on whom I, I depend on. And um, there's uh, some beautiful verses in the Quran. Sayyidina Ibrahim, the Prophet Abraham, um, he said uh, he said that he's the one who feeds me. He's the one who gives me to drink. And when I get sick, he's the one who cures me. He gives me life. He gives me death. And um, this is so. This is called Tawheed. And that Tawheed is is what's uh, it's it's. Uh, so I, don't, I think monotheism doesn't quite capture it. You know, mon- but it's this is um, this is the essence of what every prophet came with, um, and that's what that child grasped. But what I like about your uh, presentation, uh, your argument for God's existence, is that it neatly bypasses. It seems to me all these arguments about evolution and the Western understanding of intelligent design connected with certain, you know, advocates like Stephen Mayo in the United States, who, by the way, is going to be a guest on Blogging Theology in a couple of weeks. Um, (laughs) No, I I, I, I admire a lot of his stuff, but uh, your your perspective um, completely bypasses any of these issues as a problem for anyone. I mean, they they just are irrelevant uh, because you're taking, as you say, a step back be behind this and beyond it. And you're not, you're, you're not hitching your argument on this alleged irreducibly complex mechanism we see in the, in, in a bacterium or something like some people have done. Um, yeah. Yours is more metaphysical, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing with um, intelligent designs, intelligent design is I love reading those books, you know, because <laughs> You know, I because the one of the things, but you know, I'll tell the but in a second. But I like to like like say, say the good things about it. Yes. That you know, science has revealed these relationships between things in the universe that we never knew, and it's just. And so, what this does is, what this does is, it it um, it it shows that the that the universe is not just. It's not just the matrix. It's not a machine. There is some kind of an agency behind it all. So, and this, and that's and that's actually that's what these arguments do. What these arguments do is so 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 the a materialist scientist. There's two things that that there's you can say there's two there's he ha- he makes two mistakes. The first mistake is that he says. He ascribes independent. He says that the universe is sufficient to explain itself, and that that's uh, corrected through the argument from contingency. The other mistake, and it's um, it's a lesser mistake, but as a result of that, when he says the universe is self-sufficient, modern science is it 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 uh, it's mechanistic. So it describes the universe as though it was a machine, 
And a machine isn't something that's alive. It doesn't have knowledge, doesn't have will, doesn't have power. And when you see all of these examples of design, you say it can't be a machine. It can't be a machine. And that's true. But that doesn't take you to God. Mm. Because to get to God, you have to show if God is the one on whom everything depends and who himself does not depend on anything, that doesn't take you there. All this shows you is that the, the mechanistic way of looking at the, there's something else at work. And so what it does, it kind of shakes the, the materialist worldview of the scientists. But you have to take them a little bit further. And then you, you, when, when, you, when you take them to, the, um, to see the, the, the radical contingency dependency upon God, what that does is, and it's really interesting, because it, it allows the scientist to have his science as well, you know, whereas, but if, but, but if you just take the irreducible complexity route and you don't bring that thing, then it turns into a battle between science and God, because you have to show that science cannot explain this thing you have to create this opening and then you say okay that means that god is doing this thing um but what about everything else you know so what about you know so so the contingency the argument from contingency shows that the universe is evidence for the existence of god even without design mm, mm. <laughs> Hmm. Yes, I, I take your point. And I, I think the, the Surah 112, an incredibly brief Surah, just a couple of verses, in a very concentrated way, makes that point as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also, it's not just, is it? I, I, I've heard you say elsewhere, it's not just the, the Western intelligent design movement, it's not, um, but it's also other forms of the contingency argument, which you think are, are not really up to scratch. For example, in Christianity, I mean, we mentioned William Lane Craig, of course, who was a Christian philosopher, um, still very active today uh, online. And um, But you, you think that there's a problem with the Christian understanding of the community argument as well, don't you? Yeah, so William Lane Craig is, um, he uh, does make the argument from contingency. He's more known for the Kalam cosmological argument, which isn't the argument from contingency um, on the face of it. Um, but uh, I think someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas would be a better example of someone who famously made the argument from contingency. So uh, the argument from contingency, I think, uh, has been around for a long time. And it's been around from the perspective of, of Muslims. It's been around since the time of the first man, because, uh, because it's something it's part of Tawheed, which every messenger came with. And so, so the prophet Adam, he would have taught it to his children. And, and so it, it, it's there. And so then when we see it, if, when we see, if we see an aspect of it in ancient Greek philosophy, or we see an aspect of it in, uh, in a Christian argument, or we see an aspect of it here, an aspect of it there, then the way that we, Imam al-Ghazali, he famously said that, that these are the way that that someone like him viewed the uh, ancient Greeks was that they had remnants of prophetic wisdom, things that they that they that they taught. So so it's there's something before them. You know, it's not like the Enlightenment narrative that the Greeks are the you know, they're the ones who the origin of mankind. You know, there, there there's a prophetic history, and um, and so um, but it gets corrupted. It gets corrupted. It goes wrong. And so you'll see a little bit of it here. You'll see a little bit of it there, but it won't be there in its pure form. So in, in, in Christianity, 
it can't be there in its pure form because if someone believes in the incarnation and the crucifixion, then they are saying that God became a contingent thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and th- you're ascribing all kinds of contingent aspects to God. So, um, so that's why, even though, uh, you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas would make the argument from contingency, he would still ascribe some kind of a necessity, some kind of an independence to nature. And that's why he would make the first cause argument as well. And that, that reveals that. Um, and, uh, Yeah. So that's no, that's interesting. Christians do say that Jesus is God, and that, that seems to bring God within, uh, as you say, make God contingent uh, and, and indeed mortal. It gets worse than just contingency. God dies in Christian, in much Christian theology, although there's a debate about this. But uh, you know, the immortal dies, and they seem to rejoice in this uh, what they would call a paradox, um, what some yeah. people might call a complete contradiction, of, of course. Um, Okay, well, perhaps lastly, we could come to um, criticisms of, of your uh, of your view. How would an atheist respond to this argument, the argument that you're proposing, I mean? Okay, so um, we can put it into a formal form, and that's what the later scholars of the Kalam tradition did. Kalam is traditionalist in theology. So the argument is present informally in the Quran, in the child, in people, and you can kind of see it. But if you want to if you want to discuss with other people, answer objections, then you have to take it and put it into into it into a, into a formal you know, form, deductive form. So it would go something like this: like for the first premise would be um, the things in the universe are contingent. Everything in the universe is contingent. Um, the second premise would be anything, every, everything that is contingent or exists contingently needs a necessary being to make it exist. And then the conclusion would be um, the universe needs a necessary being to make it exist. All A is B, all B is C, therefore all A is C. So now if you agree with the first premise and you agree with the second premise, you must agree with the conclusion, which means that if you disagree with the conclusion, you must disagree with one of these two premises. So the two premises to disagree with are the first one, everything in the universe is contingent. Either So, so an atheist would either object to this or he would object to the second, which is that um, that con- that contingent things need a necessary being to make them exist. So the first premise, I think, is not really something that can be, and any kind of objection to it can be sustained, even um, in a, in a, even by an atheist, because atheists now commit themselves to science. So. What is what is what does science do? Science searches for the explanations of things. So when I look at the when I look at you know, anything like the sky, why is it blue? I ask I ask why is the sky blue, and then I search for an explanation. Now, when in order for me to say why is the sky blue, I can only ask that question if I admit that the sky is contingent. Because if it weren't contingent, then it would have to be the way that it is. And so I'd say, oh, the sky is blue. Oh, well, that has to be like that. I don't need to do anything. <laughs> and so, um, so the fact that, so in a, in a modern, in, a, in the modern world where science is so important, that the mere activity of science, it becomes impossible if you say that, uh, that things in the universe are not contingent. 
And since, and so I, I think this is the most effective way to, to, there's other ways people have done, but this is the most effective way to do it because you have to give up science. Nobody wants to give up science. <laughs> so, um, so then they'll, they'll come around it another way. So they'll say that, well, okay, uh, the individual things in the universe are contingent, but the universe as a whole is not contingent. And they'll say that this argument commits the fallacy of composition. The fallacy of composition is when you uh, ascribe to the whole um, a quality based on the existence of that quality in its parts. So, uh, uh, so what's the classical example of the fallacy of composition? Um, how does it go? Um, I did read it earlier on. I can't remember what it is now. Um, no, I think it was just a theoretical state, a theoretical point about you can't, uh, the, the numbers in a series form a set, but you can't judge the, the, the those numbers. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. There, there was, uh, no, there's the example of a wall that's not composition. Mm. And then there's the, okay, right. So you take the example of a wall, right? Mm. So you say that all of the bricks in the wall are small mm. and you put them all together and you say, Therefore, the wall is small. Hmm. You've committed the fallacy of composition. Hmm. Or if you say all of the big bricks in the wall are light, therefore the wall is light, you've committed the fallacy of composition. Hmm. Um, but you could also say that all of the bricks in the wall are hard, therefore the wall is hard. You haven't committed the fallacy of composition. So the so when so when so when an atheist comes and says that the individual parts in the universe are contingent but the whole is not you commit the fallacy of composition he needs to show he needs to show that the composition of the universe from contingent parts is a kind of composition that uh, and and the quality of contingency is a kind of quality in the context of that composition that disappears when the things are composed. But I, just, and, I have to just try. I'm surprised this is even a discussion because, you know, I thought it was reasonably well established that the universe had a, a point of origin of the Big Bang. Yeah. We know from multiple kind of factors now the, the expanding universe, so we can, you know, go back in time when it was contracting. We know from the, the cosmic radio background redshift thing, you know, that suggests also, you know, blah, 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 blah. So what, why is this even an object for discussion? The universe didn't always exist. It started at a particular point in time, so to speak. Therefore, it's contingent. It's not an absolutely. eternal necessary universe. So Exactly. Um, but but but, yeah. but if, if it was eternal, however, um, like Aristotle perhaps believed it was, or the pre certainly before the Big Bang came along, it, the the steady state universe was it the nineteen thirties, nineteen twenties that suddenly changed. But before then, it was assumed the universe perhaps had always existed. But that's not really a problem there for you, is it? In your radically contingent perspective on things, God still brings the universe into existence moment by moment, even on that model. Is that not the the case that's not a problem for you i mean um it's not a problem philosophically philosophically yeah yeah but but you know in, in scripture god created the heavens and the earth true you know, from nothing I know, yeah this is a good point so it would be it would be a problem in that sense this is true yeah um so, yeah sorry i interrupted you i just wanted to just express my I don't understand. I think that's, that's it. I mean, I mean yeah. so i think that 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 uh that challenging the first premise is really um, 
is really, um, I don't know, I like to be academic, but the word I want to say is silly. <laughs> it's just not an academic word. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that term. I'll look it up later in my ultra academic yeah. dictionary and like, tell me what that word means. <laughs> so, um, but it's it's not it's not reasonable, right? Um, uh, but and that's and that's one of and this actually brings us back to the beginning or our point of departure, which is so. Um, Imam Imam Ghazali famously said that when you entertain a very unreasonable, complexly worded objection, you give the impression that something is a lot more difficult than it really is. So, um, and that's, and so, um, and then, but then you have to kind of balance and it's a judgment call, like when you do it, when you don't. Um, But here, definitely it applies. So I think we can stop here with the first one. Maybe we can explain, we can explore other um, objections at another time. But then the other, the other objection that the atheist would have would be to the second premise which is that all contingent things need a necessary being to make them exist. Right. And that objection would return to um, some kind of an objection to an infinite regressive dependencies being possible. And so um, it would, I haven't seen any kind of uh, reasonable argument there, but, but it would have to be like for this particular argument, that's the only way to, to, to object to it. And I think it's pretty easy to see that it's a, it's a strong argument. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it intuitively seems correct, your argument, but I'm just fascinated. We won't go into this now because we're coming to the end, really. But I'm fascinated by the notion of infinite infinity, what that is in mathematics and in philosophy, and also this idea of infinite regress uh, as, as well uh, and what that might mean, because it's not always very clear what we mean by infinity, not clear to right. me what we mean by infinity anyway. Uh, it, is it a thing? Is it just a mental construct? Does it exist in the physical universe? Is you know what do math- mathematicians say about infinity? Because there is a a concept. Uh, there's a symbol, isn't there? Infinity symbol in mathematics. You know, I was speaking to actually was speaking to a mathematician about this. There's two. There's two of them. I didn't even. Realize. Maybe there's an infinite number of <laughs> ones. One, and one's 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 a Hebrew letter. Ah, okay, cool. And and he admitted that um, it was highly uh, debated in mathematics if there is such a thing, even as infinity. So. Um, but anyway, well, perhaps we'll leave that there. If we, unless you uh, wanted to, uh, perhaps give us a few conf- concluding thoughts on Islam's argument for existence. Um, so, you know, one of the, I think that the thing that really strikes me is that um, is that this is an ar- argument that's made in the Quran, and it's an argument that traditional Muslim scholars have understood is obligatory to teach and obligatory for every Muslim to know. So in the science of Kalam, they would say that the first obligation of every human being is to know the existence of God and the genuineness of the Prophet based on evidence. So, so, and I find that really, really remarkable because it's not a philosophical argument made by an apologist who belongs to a faith, but it's really genuinely coming from within within the religion and um and i think that's uh you know i think that's very uh, no, it's, it's great very it's based on the uh, it, it's there alluded to quite clearly in the quran in at least one passage so 112 as you mentioned so it's a it's an argument the quran presents so well thank you very much uh for that uh, hamza i i uh, as i said i will uh post the link um to your um the work you do at the Basira Education. And there are lots of YouTube videos. Actually, there are very good quality uh, videos, uh, actually, and they're very clear 
uh, in, in their exposition and leading people into the many myriad issues to do with uh, the Thinking Muslim's Guide to Atheist Arguments. So I do recommend that as well. Um, and, and maybe, God willing, one day you can come back and w- there are many other uh, things to discuss uh, to do with uh, atheist arguments and the Muslims' response to that, because um, it's an ongoing issue very much in the world at the moment. But thank you very much indeed uh, for coming on, and I'm sure uh, viewers will find this extremely interesting. Um, and until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Paul. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.